Welcome to another edition of After Darkness Light, where we're continuing the journey from darkness to light. I'm your host, Todd, broadcasting from McGuanago, Wisconsin, and today's topic is the question, transcendentalism or Christianity? Let me begin with some scripture that I think is going to be relevant to our conversation today, and that's this. In a letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In James chapter 3, it's written, preaching God's... Well, actually, it's, it's, this is what's written. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So, clearly... Preaching God's word to God's people is a sacred charge that's vital to the life of Christians in the church, carries with it real responsibilities as evidenced by what was written in James. So we would be hard-pressed to take this activity of preaching too seriously, am I right? Even the Bereans were complimented in Scripture in the 17th chapter of Acts of the Apostles because they used the Scriptures to daily test what the Apostle Paul and Silas said to see if they if what they were teaching was true. So, when an, an ordained pastor in God's house is addressing God's people with God's truth, he is in effect speaking for God. With these scriptural admonitions and examples, it's clear that it is an imperative that our pastors and teachers do, as the Apostle Paul wrote, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It is with these scriptures in mind and with the utmost care and concern and compassion for Christ's sheep, that I'm going to explore some of my observations from a sermon I listened to recently from a former pastor of mine at my former church. My intention is not to be polemical, but rather to spark meaningful dialogue and conversations and critical thought about the actual propositional truth claims that are being taught to God's people in the church. To put it another way, I hope this podcast serves to encourage us to check the content, the presuppositions, and the ingredients of the propositional truth claims our pastors are feeding us with the same vigilance as we check our food labels for gluten, carbs, sodium, and calorie content. So with that thought in mind, join me as I examine the content of this sermon. But first... I must define a term that has a name many of you may be unfamiliar with, but whose ideas will not sound foreign to you. And that term is transcendentalism. So what is transcendentalism? Well, according to Wikipedia, transcendentalism is a philosophical movement that developed in the late 1820s and 1830s in the Eastern United States. The doctrine of the Unitarian Church as taught at Harvard Divinity School was closely related. 
is also strongly influenced by Hindu texts on philosophy of the mind and spirituality, especially the Upanishads. Now, a core belief of transcendentalism is in the inherent goodness of people and nature. Adherents of transcendentalism believe that society and its institutions have corrupted the purity of the individual, and they have faith that people are at their best when truly self-reliant and independent. Transcendentalists are strong believers in the power of the individual. It is primarily concerned with personal freedom. Their beliefs are closely linked with those of the Romantics, but differ by an attempt to embrace, or at least to not impose, the empiricism of science. So there you have it. That, that is a definition, which I, I'm sure the tenets of this philosophy don't sound foreign to you, even though the term transcendentalism may be, may be a term we, we, you don't hear every day. But my question is, from listening to this sermon, is how much transcendental philosophy was taught in the form of propositional Christian truth claims in the fourth sermon in the sermon series at my former church called It Starts With Me? So that's the question we're going to be addressing. Now, many people may have different answers to this question. This podcast is, is my opinion and my observations, and I'm doing my best. I will do my best to try and be as objective as, uh, as possible. Um, although it's impossible for anyone to be unbiased, I certainly um, have biases just like anybody else. And like I said, this, this podcast is my opinion. In the world of the internet, everyone's got opinion. But who cares, right? Who cares what, what Todd from Iguanago thinks? Because I could be wrong. But I thank you for listening, and I hope that you'll make up your own mind. I hope that you'll begin to think critically about these questions and these thoughts that you may have never asked yourself before, that you may have never heard before. So it's with that thought in mind, let's dive in. So let's start with the sermon series title itself. Uh, this is the fourth installment of the series, It Starts With Me. And the question we're going to ask about that is, is that truth claim? Because the, the title is a truth claim. It Starts With Me is a claim about truth. That something starts with something else. That whatever it is starts with whatever that is, which is me. So it's a truth claim. We can't forget that. And what is, and so, my, so I guess the first question is, let's start with, this is, this is like the book title. You know, the sermon series is like the title. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what we're calling it. This is what we're doing. And uh, there are lots of little sermons within the big sermon series title umbrella. And this series, sermon series title umbrella is, it starts with me. So let's ask the question, does that truth claim of that sermon series title have more in common with transcendental philosophy or... Biblical Christian truth. I mean, I think that's a fair question. And I, and I think that's a question that, that we always should be asking when we hear people preaching or speaking for God. Um, are you legitimately, truly speaking truth and how would I know? And I think that this is a primary question for us to ask. So, is uh, do those four words, it starts with me, have more in common with sound biblical Christian truth or does it have more in common with transcendental philosophy? 
Well, first of all, the sentence, it starts with me, is not a sentence found anywhere in the Bible. And it's perfectly in line with transcendental philosophy, which focuses on the individual, self-reliance, and independence. So right off the bat, the truth claim has more in common with transcendental philosophy than the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean anything. It's just these are the observations of the raw words in the raw truth claim. There you have it. So you know, transcendental philosophy focuses on the individual, self-reliance and independence. And, you know, biblical theology, you know, it, it seems to focus on Jesus and God and forgiveness and, 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 and God's will and God's working. And, and this seems to have more in common with transcendental philosophy. Okay, I think you get that. Okay. But of course, it's unfair to judge a sermon by its sermon series title, because that's like judging a book by its cover. What's important is the content that's inside. So let's look inside the sermon to see if we find more transcendental philosophy or if we find biblical Christian theology. So the sermon begins not with a biblical text or a quote from a Christian or an article written by a Christian, but rather the sermon begins with an article by the National Science Foundation, citing a study about our thoughts. It's an appeal to an article from the National Science Foundation. And so is that, an article from the National Science Foundation, is that more consistent with Christian biblical theology, or is it more consistent with the philosophy of transcendentalism, which embraces the empiricism of science? So, well, you'll have to be the judge. You'll have to answer that own question. I mean, first of all, is the National Science Foundation cited in the Bible? No. Does the National Science Foundation cite the Bible in the article? Probably not. <laughs> Probably. I mean, that's, I mean, to be honest, I didn't read the article. I just heard the, the quote of, the, uh, the, of what the pastor quoted from it. 80% of our thoughts are negative from a recent study, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But the point is, is this alone citing a non-biblical source, the National Science Foundation, to support uh, an empirical study of our thoughts, does that have more in line with biblical Christian theology or transcendental philosophy? And if you're honest with the definition of transcendental philosophy, it seems to be more in line with transcendental philosophy. Um, just on the merits, because the National Science Foundation isn't in the Bible. and You get what I'm saying. But you have to make up your own mind. Um, so then the pastor went on from there and told an inspiring story about a poor man who lived in a foreign country who decided to make a difference by building a windmill from junk, which powered some lights, charged the neighbor's cell phone, and pumped water. Uh, the pastor then identified the point of him bringing up this story by saying, quote, it all started with this thought. I think I can make a difference. So let's ask the same questions we've been asking. Does this anecdotal, inspirational story that was used to illustrate an example of the power of a thought have more in common with Christian biblical theology or transcendental philosophy? And if we're honest with our analysis, we must admit that this anecdotal story of the windmill builder is not in the Bible. And the point it was making quote, it all started with this thought, I think I can make a difference, is a sentence also not found in the Bible, not found in the teaching of Jesus or his apostles. However, 
The principle of the power of the mind, individualism, and self-reliance are core beliefs of, you guessed it, transcendental philosophy. So did this story, this non-biblical story of the windmill builder, have more in common with the power of the mind, individualism, and self-reliance, or biblical theology, faith, God, Jesus, you know, Christian theology? You'll have to be the judge of that. Then we go on from there in the sermon. The pastor referenced and taught the domino effect, which was demonstrated in a YouTube video played during two previous sermons in the series, proving that dominoes can knock down other dominoes that are one and a half times their size. And that if you started with a really tiny domino and you lined up 29 other dominoes that progressively got one and a half times larger, that it would end up knocking down a domino the size of the Empire State Building. Now, of course, this is a fascinating and interesting fact about physics, but does it, let's ask the same question, does it have more in common with Christian biblical theology or transcendental philosophy? And to answer that question, we need to look at the raw facts. The YouTube video is not found in the Bible and therefore is by definition not scripture and is a, by definition, non-Christian source. Now, of course, it doesn't make it bad or wrong, but if we're honest, we must admit it's a non-biblical source. It's outside of God's word, and it's being used to support and prove what comes next in the sermon, the maxim. But before we get to that, I would just like to point out that this is an example, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me that this, using an example of the physics of dominoes to prove a Christian theological doctrine is what's called a logical fallacy. In other words, it's just because dominoes can do something does not prove that people can do something in the worldview of Christianity. Does that make sense? So in other words, just because dominoes are under physical laws that they have to knock down a one and a half time domino. And they can't, just because dominoes can do something does not mean that humans can do it. Um, And to make that case is what's called a logical fallacy. In other words, there's no proof that because dominoes have this ability that then we have ability to, you know, make small steps to find our destiny or whatever. Now, it may be true that humans can do a small step and then accomplish great things. And it may also be true that dominoes that are smaller can knock over dominoes of one and a half. But the relationship between the two, the proving of one to the other is, is a, um, it does, it's, it's a logical fallacy. There's, the connection point is not made there. Um, So I just thought I'd throw that in there before we get to the maxim um, that just because there are certain laws of physics for dominoes does not mean that uh, that human beings, therefore, can also do great and amazing things if they uh, do something small. So anyways, all right, so now now to the maxim. So so this, the, the domino effect was used to prove what comes next in the sermon, which is called the maxim. 
Now, according to the pastor, the series maxim that this dominoes effect illustrated is little things can produce big results. So that's the maxim. Little things can produce big results. So, and, and this, is, this is what the logical fallacy was, was meant to prove, is that since obviously a little domino can knock over the, a domino the size of the Empire State Building, um, that proves that little things can produce big results. And I say, if we're talking about dominoes, you bet your bippy that's true. But just because it's true for dominoes doesn't mean it's true for people. So anyways, so what observations, let, let's get back, back on task here. So what observations can we make about this series maxim? Little things can produce big results. And does that truth claim have more in common with transcendental philosophy or Christian biblical theology? It's our same question. Um, so first of all, the observations. Well, first of all, the sentence, little things can produce big results is not found in the Bible. I mean, that's just factual. So it, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean that the concept isn't taught in scripture, but it's always easier to prove a teaching is biblical if the actual sentence is actually found in the Bible. It's a more difficult task to prove a sentence is not found in scripture is scriptural. That makes sense? Yeah. So next, let's consider the examples cited in the sermon so far, including the National Science Foundation's article on individual thoughts, the domino effect, and the anecdotal story of the windmill builder. It seems clear this propositional truth claim is teaching that I as an individual have the ability or power to produce big results by taking control of my little things. And it's made even more clear by the official description summary of the sermon by the church that was sent out in an email after the sermon promoting the series. And this is the church's official summary of the sermon that the pastor taught on the power of our minds, and how just one thought can make a big impact. Now, considering the non-biblical examples of the windmill builder, an article from a non-scriptural source, such as the National Science Foundation, a non-Christian video about the physics of dominoes, and the church's official description summary of the sermon as a teaching on the power of our minds, does the maxim, little things can produce big results, have more in common with Christian biblical theology or transcendental philosophy. And when considering your answer, remember, all the sources cited up to this point, all the sentences used to support the maxim to this point in the sermon, did not include any sentences from the Bible, but included ideas about the necessity of an individual's self-reliance and the power of the mind, which are consistent with the core beliefs of transcendental philosophy. Then the pastor quoted a French idealist philosopher named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who, according to Wikipedia, has had profound influence on the New Age movement. The quote was, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So let's ask this question. Does this quote attributed to a French philosopher who has profoundly influenced the New Age movement have more in common with Christian biblical theology or transcendental philosophy? Now, before I go any further with the answer to that question, uh, we have to say this. I, I did some research, and according to QuoteInvestigator.com, there is no record of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin ever making that quote. 
However, the quote has been sourced from a 1988 Time Magazine Volkswagen ad and a 1989 book authored by a self-help guru and motivational speaker named Wayne Dyer. And his book was titled, You'll See It When You Believe It, The Way to Your Personal Transformation. And the book taught the universal principles that lead to your self-realization. The quote has also been used by the Mormon self-help author, Stephen Covey, the self-help guru, Tony Robbins, and Moira Timms, who's an Egyptologist who studies the mystic religions of ancient Egypt, and she credited the phrase to a well-known mystic who died in 1949. So so that, that was some background. So maybe Pierre said that, maybe he didn't, um, but the point is this, uh, this quote, this truth claim is used by uh, many, many different sources, all of which are non-Christian. Um, I thought that was interesting. How about you? Okay, continuing on with our sermon review. So according to the pastor, the primary takeaway was that our body is just a shell to carry our true inner selves. The purpose of of this podcast is not to have a lengthy discussion about the history of beliefs, about the nature of our anthropology, which would include a discussion of Plato's ideas that our soul is trapped in our bodies like an oyster is trapped in a shell. And we don't have time to go into the nuances of Gnostic philosophy, which argues the body's bad and the, spirits are, the spirit is good. So, so rather than go down that rabbit trail, um, I'm just going to discuss and make this observation. Uh, the long list of people who have implemented or alleged to have implemented that quote didn't, did not include any Christians, but rather included a French New Age philosopher, a Volkswagen ad, a Mormon apologist, two self-help motivational speakers, and a mystic. Who knew that true Christian theology had so much in common with two false religions, modern marketing, mysticism, and the self-help industry? Um, that that was that was my my observation is 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 true Christian teaching really that popular? Um, so I mean that was a question that uh, that you'll have to answer is is does does Christian truth share excitement and 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 teaching and and uh, acclaim in these dubious places? Um, you'll, you'll have to answer that question. Um, okay, and then skipping ahead in the sermon, there was another quote that was uh, given. Um, during the sermon, the pastor quoted Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he, he quoted this thought, this, uh, excuse me, this quote. Sow a thought, and you reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. So let's ask the same question we've been asking all along. Does this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was an American essayist, lecturer, philosopher, and poet, who led the transcendentalist movement of the mid-19th century, have more in common with biblical Christian theology or transcendental philosophy? And when thinking about your answer, here are the facts to consider. That quote by Emerson did not mention any scripture, Didn't mention Jesus, God, or Christianity, but it did mention what? You. The quote focuses exclusively 
on the individual's self-reliance, which is a core belief of transcendentalism. And the quote did not mention God doing anything, but rather you doing everything in order to reap your destiny. The pastor also said during this sermon, quote, a small thought can produce big results. We saw that in William's story. What's your story? What do you want your story to be? How can you make a difference? We need to strengthen our imagination. That's a thought, isn't it? Our dreams are our thoughts, and we need to strengthen those imaginations because God wants to do some big things that you've been telling him you can't do. So, does that quote by this Christian pastor have more to do with biblical Christian theology or transcendental philosophy? There was a lot of talk about you, your thought, what do you want your story to be, how can you make a difference, you need to strengthen your imagination, and our dreams are our thoughts, and we need to strengthen those imaginations. Is that sound like more in, does that have more in common with individualism and self-agency and you and uh, or does it have more in common with biblical theology? Um, you're going to have to answer that question. But uh, I think these are important questions to ask. Does it does this sound like something a transcendentalist would say, or does it sound like something that a a Christian apostle would say? Um, okay, the following I I'd cited before. The following was the official description summary of the sermon by the church. Uh, that was sent out in an email after the sermon promoting the series. And it was, our thoughts shape who we are and who we will become. Uh, pastor taught on the power of our minds and how just one thought can make a big difference. Uh, big impact, excuse me. Uh, big impact. So, and does that summary from the church of what the sermon was about have more in common with the dictionary definition of transcendental philosophy or with biblical Christian theology. All right, now, to be fair, in, in, the, in the sermon, the pastor cited a bunch of scriptures, which is great anytime scriptures are cited. Um, so he list, listed 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm going to go through them right now, but we're just going to ask, ask the one question. Is because I think these scriptures are great. Uh, they're God's word. They are what pastors are supposed to preach, teach, and read to Christ's sheep. Um, so that's excellent. But I want to compare what God's word is saying in these cited texts with the church's summary of what the sermon was about uh, and what the pastor taught about. So we're going to be asking the question, does this text um, fall more in line with the power of our minds? And, how, and is this text teaching how just one thought can make a big impact? Or is it teaching something else? You'll have to be the judge. Let's begin. Uh, the pastor did a great job citing 2 Corinthians 5 about renewing your mind. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. I just repeated that, excuse me. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So that's 2 Corinthians 5. Um, and, And so upon hearing that word of God, does the power of our minds make an appearance in, in that scripture? And the answer is no. Does the appearance of making a big impact, in other words, you have to make a, a big impact um, or, or one thought can make a big impact. And, and I guess my analysis of, I mean, yours may be different, but my analysis is 2 Corinthians 5 doesn't even mention the power of our minds. Um, it it. We are a new creation. That's true. We probably get a new mind. That's probably true. Um, but becoming a new creation is different from saying the power of our minds is how we can make a big impact. Instead, it's the new creation. And it said in verse 18 says, this isn't from the power of your minds. All this is from God. So actually, 2 Corinthians 5 is at odds with the summary of the sermon. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is not talking about the power of minds. It's not talking about your brain making a big impact. It's talking about all this is from not you, but from God. And you're a new creation because of God, not because of the power of your mind to make a big impact. Now moving on, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Actually... No, we'll go to Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So does this text in Proverbs 4 teach about the power of our minds and how just one thought can make a big impact? Um, You know, and, and this is a maybe. Maybe this does teach this. Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Um, it, I, I think if we're honest, it's not the clearest implication. Um, you know, keep your heart with all village from, from it flows the springs of life. Fair enough. Um, Jesus said out of our hearts come murders and thefts and wicked desires. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but it's what comes out. Um, there certainly is. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, that that might be one. The power of our minds, uh, how one thought can make a big impact. Um, I have to be honest with that. But keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, it flows the springs of life. Does that teach that you can make a big impact by thinking different thoughts? Maybe. But I, I think if we're honest, it's not the clearest. Um, all right, 2 Corinthians 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Does this text teach about the power of our minds and how just one thought can make a big impact? Um, no, it doesn't. And here's why. If you look at the context of this um, if you look at the context of this, um, it is not teaching the power of taking a thought in your own brain captive. What it's teaching in context is that 
the apostles are taking captive every thought to make it obedience to belief in Christ. Um, let me read the context and, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Ephesians 2. Or actually, no, that's 2 Corinthians 5. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standard of this world. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So in this text, which is so often used as a um, teaching point that that you need to uh, police your thoughts, that you need to take, every, if you have a lustful bad thought, you need to take it captive, Jesus. Now, I don't think, I think that's a great idea. I think we're called to do that. I think we're supposed to do that. But I don't think that this text in this context is teaching that. Instead, it's teaching um, this battle between truth and lie. Um, this, this battle between thoughts that would be against Christ, against the knowledge of God, um, and demolishing arguments uh, that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. The context seems to be Paul's not saying, I'm taking my own thoughts captive. I'm taking other people's arguments, thoughts um, that are against the knowledge of God. Now, I'm no biblical, I don't know Greek, and I'm not an expert at this, but, and I could be wrong. But it seems to me that this is not a text speaking about the power of our minds and how just one thought can make a big impact. Instead, it's teaching about Paul and the apostles demolishing arguments and taking captive thoughts of other people who have and make their thoughts obedient to this, the knowledge of God and obedience to Christ. And he even finishes this off by saying, we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Um, so it seems to me that the context is outside of Paul's own head and is in people who would be against Christianity or have thoughts against Christianity. Um, but once again, I certainly could be wrong. It seems to me that that's, this is not a text about uh, Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. I'm taking negative thoughts captive so I can have positive thoughts and you know, things are going to go well for me. I mean, this is, this is not Stuart Smalley uh, theology here. This is, this is apologetics, demolishing arguments uh, talk. But, but anyway, that, that, that's how my, my take is on that. Well, what's yours? Um, Ephesians 3 was mentioned in the sermon. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. 
Now, does this text teach about the power of our minds and how just one thought can make a big impact? It doesn't seem that way. I don't see the power of our minds. In fact, I see God being exalted above the powers of our minds and our imaginations. In other words, God is able to do immeasurably more than what I can ask or imagine. According to his power, that's work within us, not according to the power of my mind and how my thought can make a big impact. Uh, I hope that makes sense. This text is not teaching about the power of our minds and not not teaching about the big impact that one thought can make. In fact, it's demolishing the idea that God's going to do even better stuff than you can even think or imagine. And he's not going to do it by the power of your mind. He's going to do it by the power, his power, that's at work within us. So there you have it. Those were my observations of a recent sermon at my former church by one of my former pastors. Um, And this pastor is a great man who has true and noble intentions. He's dedicated his life to the church. I believe he's sincere in wanting to teach and preach to Christ's sheep. Um, and, And I hope that this podcast does not come off as polemical in the sense of Uh, disparaging any person or ministry, but rather, I hope this podcast serves to start conversations, real talk about the source content used in teaching and preaching in Christian churches today. Um, And of course, this podcast is my opinion, and I could be wrong, Um, but I'm asking these questions because I really care about Christian truth. And Such questions as, does it matter where our propositional truth claims come from? You know, such questions as, how likely is it that a Christian propositional truth claim is embraced, taught, and affirmed by a Mormon, popular marketing, mystics, transcendental philosophers, self-help authors, and motivational speakers? How likely is that? I mean, specifically considering, Jesus said, you'll be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endured to the end who will be saved. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. You know, and James wrote, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I in no way am implying that the pastor that delivered this as an adulteress or a false teacher or anything like that. So please do not hear me say that. But I am asking these questions. What does it mean to be a friend of the world if it doesn't mean quoting transcendentalists, self-help gurus, Mormons, secular YouTube videos? Um, you, you You get what I'm saying. What does it mean to be a friend of the world and, and how can, you know, yeah, anyway, I mean, these are my questions. And I, and I hope that this came off with a good heart. I hope that you hear I'm not trying to uh, disparage or smear or hurt anyone's feelings. But I, I thought I'd take this opportunity to use real life content. Like I'm not, this isn't some ivory tower discussion of theoretical. This is, this is real life. And, and, and so I, I, I thought it would be best to take real life examples in a real life church from a real life pastor in a real life sermon and, and analyze it. Analyze the content. Where is this coming from? What is this? 
Did it come from the Bible? Did it come from another source? Is that a problem? Does you, you get what I'm saying. So these are the questions I'm asking. You certainly may have different answers than me, and that's totally fine. And I thank you for listening. Um, 